Be seated. morning, great men and women of God. Thankful that you're here with us on this Palm Sunday. Uh, we are actually finishing up uh, a series this morning called Conversate, uh, and that means next Sunday you can go back to using conversation or conversing, as we've used this version. But we've been focusing on following Jesus into the ways that he talked with people about God. Jesus had an amazing ability that when he was talking with someone who believed very differently about God than he did, he was able to continue conversations and lead people to truth. We're intrigued with that. So the last few weeks, we've been looking at uh, some of the conversations Jesus had, and not just what he said, but really how did he say it? One of the first things we looked at is that Jesus began to teach his disciples, before you want to learn to talk about God to other people, you need to learn how to talk to God. And so we began to see how the Lord's prayer affects our conversations. And then we paid attention to the fact that Jesus was an incredible asker of questions and listener of stories. And the way that he did that really opened people up to continue conversations going. And sometimes uh, questions continue conversations, and sometimes answers shut them down. And then last week, we saw Jesus get into kind of a, a tricky conversation where he could have easily fallen uh, off, off kind of the rails there. And we talked about this fact of truth that, that while we are always to share truth, we don't always have to share every truth. One of the things Jesus seemed to do so masterfully was to share the most important truth of that moment. And that required him to always be asking the question, where is the Father going in this conversation? And so we've been looking at a number of different things about the ways that Jesus said things. And we can learn a lot from what he said. This morning as we close, though, I want to throw this out that we can also learn a lot from what he didn't say. There are many things that we say that Jesus said that Jesus actually never said. But we've said what Jesus said so much that we think that Jesus said what he said, but he didn't say it. Know what I'm saying? That's what he's doing. There are many things that we say that end up being these little verbal pebbles. Now, our hearts are good and pure, and we want to encourage people, but it doesn't always feel like that. For example, Jesus never said, if you were a better Christian. That stone says, whatever you're going through, it's because you just haven't done enough. Jesus also never said, when God closes a door... He opens a window. I don't even understand what that means. God says, well, I don't want you to go through the door, but if you can jimmy that window open, then you can go through there. So get climbing. Something Jesus also never said, very, very popular thing he never said, everything happens for a reason. When people are in the middle of their darkest times, the last thing they want to be thrown is a stone that said, well, God's working everything out for good if you love him enough. It's not helping. It's not comforting. A friend of mine actually heard that this week, uh, uh, recently. A friend of mine was going through an unimaginable loss of someone they loved. And someone said to this person, you know, God gives his hardest battles to his greatest warriors. Feel better, suffering person. Here you go. Jesus also never said this. God won't give us more than we can handle. Now, I've said that before. Many of you may have said that before, but can you imagine Jesus 
finding somebody with leprosy or someone whose kid just died or someone who's been laying there lame for 38 years begging for food and Jesus saying to them, well, you know, God won't give you more than you can handle. So if you're having a hard time handling something, what's wrong? It's your fault. I would actually say this. God often gives me more than I can handle. That's the whole reason I need him. He's given me much more than I can handle. Now, those are some kind of silly things, but let me get to this big stone for a minute. Don't get nervous. Not you, no, especially. I'm going over there with it. Of all the things that Jesus never said, I think there is the biggest, all-time, stoniest stone said with the greatest of hearts, but it causes the most damage, and it's this phrase. Love the sinner, hate the sin. This may be the biggest conversation-killing stone that Christians ever throw. Now, it sounds really good, even though it's nothing near to anything Jesus ever said. But why does that sound like, feel like such a big stone when you hear it? Because of this. It drives us to see people less as people first and more as sinners first. It changes the way we deal with them. If you remember, we've talked about this before. We were created, Genesis 1, Genesis 2. We fell into sin, Genesis 3. But the primary identity of our life is not sin, or the primary identity of our life is, I am a human created in the image of God. And this begins to change the way that we see people. We stop seeing others as image bearers of God, and we start seeing them as whatever their sin is. That becomes what we see them as. That's their label. We also sometimes begin to see ourselves subtly, as better than they are. I mean, how great are we that we are able to overcome their sin to love them? It's a pat on the back for us. And it also makes it hard for us to separate people from their behavior. And often our hatred for what someone does bleeds over into our hatred of who someone is. And one of the reasons is I think it's just very dangerous and difficult to put the word love and hate in the same sentence. It just doesn't work. Well, Jesus, are you sure Jesus never said love the sinner? I'm sure over there somewhere he said that. No, what Jesus actually said, I did a little research, he said things like this. Love your, love one, love your enemies. It's really interesting to me that he is saying to you, I want you to think of people in terms of being your neighbor. I want you to think of terms and be, of people being one another. This is a little challenging. He says, I want you to even think about your enemies in a way that you're wondering how you love them. It's like he almost wanted us to see each other as equal humans first in the way we deal with people. And this gets at the heart of something that we don't often hear in Jesus' conversations, but it often crops up in ours, or at least it often crops up in mine. And it's a word that we don't know how to use well. And the word is judgment. When you read through the Gospels, you see that the way that religious people spoke with judgment kept people away from God. But the way that Jesus spoke without judgment actually helped people to come to God. And sometimes our focus in a conversation is so much on judgment that it prevents us from leading people to Christ. And we become known for what we are against more than we are known for what we are for. So as we wrap up this series today, I want to look at a, a passage and ask this question. How can we follow Jesus in the way that he spoke without judgment? Now, 
Before we do that, quick caveat. Some of you are thinking, wait a minute. I read the Gospels, and I remember that Jesus had some pretty judgmental things. You are absolutely right. In fact, Jesus said some of the harshest and most judgmental things I've ever heard spoken before, all towards one specific group of people. We'll find out who they were in a minute. But first, I'd like to ask you to turn to John chapter 8. Now, if you have a Bible... Turn over there in the New Testament to John. In my Bible, it's page 130, if that helps you. Uh, You can also go online to an app. I've got my app right here. It is in the middle of this first page. I tap it. There it is. John 8. I want you to follow along in this story because it's an amazing conversation. We'll start in the very first of the chapter, and we find Jesus on the move. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. In the morning, he went back to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down, and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught out in adultery, and they stood her in the middle, middle of the room. Teacher, they said to him, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. So let's pause for a minute. A bunch of religious men caught a woman doing something that they didn't like, and their response was judgment. It was immediate judgment. It was swift judgment, and it was biased judgment. Why do you say biased? I say biased because who's not here at this scene? Where is the man? Now, John says that the Pharisees said, this woman was caught in the very act. That means they literally walked in on her while she was with this man, both doing something wrong, but they selectively applied judgment only to her. As a side note, this is one of the issues of judgment. It becomes very selective. So they grab her, and she's probably half-dressed, if she is that. And they parade her all the way through the streets, right through the doors of the temple, and then in front of everyone and God, literally, they throw her down into the middle of the room, and they have a question. Jesus, teacher, verse 5. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone people like this. What do you say? Now, when they say Moses commanded, what they're meaning is they're referring back to their Bible, their version of it, that Torah. This meant the Bible said it. So I want you to really hear something from these guys. Let's don't give them, this is not just an angry mob. These people were not just reaching into left field and making up judgment. They had a verse. What was their verse? Leviticus 20.10. If a man... If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be what? Okay. God's word? Yes? No? Maybe? They believed it was. That's the verse. Now, they didn't have the adulterer. I don't know where that guy is. But they did have the adulteress, and they did have a verse, and they had a stone. So what else do you need? Now, you wouldn't think this story could get any worse, and then it does. Look at verse 6. They said this to test Jesus so they could frame a charge against him. Oh, it's a setup. You see, Roman law said people are not allowed to kill other people. That is the role of the state. We're not going to have vigilantes running around Rome. Jewish law said... The law of Moses says that if you have a lawbreaker like this, you could kill them. So Jesus, what do you say? Rome 
or Jew. If you say yes, you break Roman law. If you say no, you break God's law. Either way, what? You break a law, and we got you. Now we can get you arrested. Their judgment had an agenda. Judgment often has an agenda. This woman is not a person. She is a pawn. She began her mourning being used by a man for his own selfish purposes, only to find herself now being used by another group of men for theirs. What's your position, Jesus, on this important issue? What do you say? What do we say when we find ourselves in a conversation with someone that might be considered a lawbreaker, and they ask us, what do you say? Verse 6. Jesus squatted down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Now the question that is on everyone's mind throughout 2,000 years of history is what? What did he, what did he write? I'm going to tell you right now what he wrote. No one alive today knows. For some reason, that didn't get captured for us. I always look at that, and I'm like, John, were you in the back? Like, what, why did, what did she write? What did he write? But I think since we're looking at not just what Jesus said, but how he said it, possibly, I'm just going to throw this out as a thought, possibly Jesus is modeling being slow to speak and quick to hear, and maybe he's allowing the frenzy of this conversation to calm down. Maybe he's even reminding everybody who's really in charge. How would our spiritual conversations change if we paused more? Well, that didn't work. Verse 7, they went on pressing him with the question. He got up and he said to them, whichever of you is without stone should throw the first stone at her. And once again, he squatted down and rode on the ground. This is so risky. What's going to happen in this moment? Years ago, 20-something years ago, I was working with a youth group, and we actually decided that we would reenact this story as a teaching time on the Wednesday night of youth group. And so we had different students dress up in biblical garb. You know, we had this one girl was the woman, and she was kind of all dressed up, looked like Mary or somebody like that. And then we had the guys come in, and they were dressed up like Pharisees. It was a very, very uh, off, 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 off-Broadway production. And I'm in the back of the room, and the, uh, the, guy, the person that was teaching was up here, and we gave every middle school student in the room a stone. <laughs> you, was that not a good idea? And so we, we had her, the doors burst open. Uh, we were teaching on the passage, and all of a sudden the doors burst open at the end, and they brought her in, and they, they threw her on the ground. She's laying there, and the, the guy up on the stage is in. Like, so those of you without sin... Throw the first stone. And standing in the back of that room, I had this moment of, of realizing just how risky this was. You, there could be a middle school student who says, well, I don't have a lot of sin. And then in that moment of fear, I was praying with everything in me, Lord, please don't let anyone throw a stone. And I realized I'm still praying that decades later. And I think we miss the risk of this. In this moment, Jesus said, okay, each of you, any of you who's without sin should throw the first stone. Some knucklehead could have done it. This is very dangerous. Verse 9, but when they heard it, 
They went off one by one, beginning with the oldest. Jesus was left alone with the woman still standing there. Now what's interesting about his comment here in verse 7 and 8 is that Jesus does not deny what she did. He just shifts the conversation to the truth that everyone there is guilty of something. So none of them are qualified to judge this woman. Even though they have a verse. Even though they have a lawbreaker. Even though they have a stone. What they don't have is the right to condemn her. By the way, I love that the oldest men left first. These are men who've lived a long time. They've done a lot of sinning. They get it. They know. So here's this woman, alone and vulnerable. The judgment of the men was death. What would the holy man say? Look at verse 10. Jesus looked up. Where are they, woman? Hasn't anybody condemned you? Nobody, sir, she replied. Well then, said Jesus, I don't condemn you either. Off you go, and from now on, don't sin again. Everyone in this conversation looked upon her nakedness. Only one man saw her. To most people, she was a label. She was a victim. She was a sexual partner. She was a tool to be used to embarrass and entrap, but Jesus treats her like a person. But did you hear what he said? I don't condemn you either. How could a holy man say that? Didn't he know the verse in Leviticus? Wait a minute, if I have my understanding right, Jesus is God. Didn't he write the verse in Leviticus himself? She didn't even say that she was sorry. She didn't even say, please forgive me. He didn't excuse her life. He did say, don't sin again. But he also wasn't going to see her die for her mistake. Now, here's something that she didn't know that we, looking back, we know. Jesus fully intended for someone to die for her adultery. He fully intended it. That person was not going to be her. Those stones would instead be hurled at a young teacher standing in a temple. They had the verse. They had the lawbreaker. They had the stones. And all Jesus had was forgiveness. What really begins to disorient me about this story is this. We are all this woman. We all stand before God naked in different ways. We've all hurt people. We've all been hurt. And we're all broken. Brian Stevenson, author of an amazing book called Just Mercy, notices this. Being broken is what makes us human. Sometimes we're fractured by the choices we make. Sometimes we're shattered by the things we never would have chosen. But our brokenness is also the source of our common humanity, the basis for our shared search of comfort, meaning, and healing. Our shared vulnerability and imperfection nurtures and sustains our capacity for compassion. There's something that changes when we realize we're all broken. It's a good thing these men dropped their stones and strode away because the other choice would have been to continue down a path of denying their own brokenness, denying their own humanity, and denying their own best hope for healing. Because the only way they were going to find any of God's forgiving compassion would be for them to drop their stone and go step into the circle and stand next to this woman and Jesus. 
Let me give you an example of this. My friend, Eric, pastors a church here in town. I was visiting him, and they actually have pews in this church, and so they have these little cards there. And I was like, Eric, what's this card? Eric says, oh, we stand up and we read this card out loud together every Sunday. I was like, really? Let's read this card. This is the card they read out loud every Sunday. If you are a saint, a sinner, a loser, a winner, abused, abuser, poor, gambler, lost, fearful, ADHD, liar, hypocrite, bastard, lover, cutter, tweaker, alcoholic, adopted, abandoned, leftover, divorced, LGBT, alone, old, young, driven, cheater, success, infected, rejected, pierced and tatted, or just a misfit, you are welcome here. So I read that, and I said, hey, Eric, how do you get away with that uh, in church? <laughs> he said, I know. He said, you know, for a long time I wrestled with this, and I thought, you know, I'm going to take that word bastard. I'm going to take that off the card. That's just hurtful. It's not helpful. It's, I'm going to take it off. He said, then one day I had a guy come up to me and say, do you know why I'm at this church? The guy goes, no. He holds it up, and he goes, I'm the bastard. That's the only name my dad ever called me. That's who I am. He said, look at this. He went to his car and he came back and he had a CD of thrash metal music that he had made. The cover of it, uh, the title of the CD was Bastard. And the photo on the front of the, of, of the CD was a grainy photo of a kitchen. And in that kitchen, there's a little boy sitting playing on the linoleum and standing over him is this powerful man in a white white tank top. The title says, Bastard. It goes, this is the only picture I have of me and my dad. And he says, the reason I'm at this church is because I feel like there's a place for me. So Eric said, so I didn't change the card. Now there's an alternative to using judgment in our conversations, and I want to show that to you, but first, I, I, want, to, I want to allow you to interact with this card for a minute, because something happens when you do. I want to put this card up for a second. And I want you to look over these words and ask God what he might be saying to you this morning. Eric told me that in his experiences, he's been doing this for several years now, that people see two words. The first word they see is the label that they give themselves. That's the first word that jumps out. The second word they see is the label that bothers them the most about someone else. 
What's your first word? What's your second word? Cards on the table, my first word is alone. That's the word that stands out to me. The second word, my second word, is the word abuser. Specifically, when I see that word, I think about people who are bullies, people who push kids around. I think about people who use uh, God's word to bully and abuse people. Now, here's where it gets scary. Our second word might be somebody else's first word. Your first word might be somebody else's second word. Here's the truth. We're just not good at judgment. We discovered this in the garden. In the garden, God said, I'm going to give you the freedom to do anything that you want as long as you don't eat this fruit from this tree. What was it? It was the tree of what? The knowledge of good and evil. That was for God alone. But boy, we wanted that fruit. And boy, did it ever backfire. One bite, and we've been biting people ever since. Now, I want you to understand that we can take this off now, please. I want you to understand that judgment is a good thing when God does it. Let's take this off the screen just for a second, please. I want to make a different point. Thank you. Listen, judgment is a good thing. I want you to say that with me. Judgment is a good thing. Some of you said that more excitedly than others. That's okay. It's a good thing when God does it. And in a brutal world of bullies and evil, I need to know that one day a judge is going to put the wicked in their place, and one day he's going to finally rescue the poor and bless the oppressed and give the earth to the meek. That's the day I need to know that Jesus is going to judge, and he's going to do it so much better than we are. Because Jesus knows the bigger story of people. He knows their past, he knows their present, what they're going through, and he also knows their future. How else could the father of the prodigal son actually give his son the cash to go out to the city and sin? The father, the prodigal son's father empowered his sinning. Like, this is crazy for me. I'm going to give you money, son, even though I know what you're going to go do with it. How could he do that unless he knew a bigger story? A story of reunion and restoration, a story of coming home and celebration. We are bad at judgment, and this is one reason why Jesus won't let us do it. Look what he told, said in John chapter 5. He says, the Father doesn't judge anyone, you see. He has handed over all judgment to the Son. Okay, pop quiz, just using this verse. How much judgment has the Father handed over to the Son? 10%? 30%? You guys are, sound like a broken record. All, okay. Then how much judgment did he is left over for us to use? None. Yes. This makes me begin to think that Christ followers ought to be the least judgmental people on the planet. Well, Thomas, if we're not going to throw stones, though, how, how, what are we supposed to do? What if we become the people who catch the stones who are thrown at people, and instead we take those people to Jesus? What if we become people who start to stop throwing stones, we catch stones, and we take people to Jesus and let Jesus sort them out? What if we became stone catchers? Now, Brian uses this term in his book in a different way. I just like the word, and I want to borrow it. A few thoughts on what it means to be a stone catcher. Stone catchers sit on the same side of the table. Because one thing that's true for us throughout history, we always have had groups of people we think the gospel is not for. 
We hold up a card like this, and we're okay with the gospel being for my first word, but I don't really want the gospel to be for that person's second word. But when we begin to realize that all of our words are on this card, then we can come scoot over and sit on the same side of the table. We can stop, uh, drop our stones and speak to people about this teacher in the temple, the man who told us everything we could ever have ever done, and we could wonder with them, could this be the Messiah? The more sinful that we know that we are, the less judgmental we will be. The conversation begins to change when we're not trying to get someone to come inside our circle, but instead just to sit with us and say, Let's, let, what does Jesus mean? Who could he be for you? Let's look at him side by side. Now, I did tell you that Jesus threw some stones of judgment against one group, and this is very true. Jesus spoke with judgment to people who used judgment to keep people from God. And he held nothing back. People that were ready to throw stones at others, people who didn't need to hunger or thirst for righteousness because they already had it. But what he didn't judge, it seems, in the Gospels was the brokenness of people. This is, like, this is why one of the most powerful ways we could be like Jesus is to listen to people's stories, to hear more of where they have been and where they are, and to look for ways and to listen to the Father for ways that we can point them towards Jesus not towards our side of the table. Stone catchers sit on the same side. Hey, we're in this together. Let's both look at Jesus. But question, how, how will people get fixed then? Stone catchers let Jesus judge. There's something interesting about these guys that walked away. These stone throwers walked away in shame. They knew they couldn't judge her. They knew it wasn't their job. But instead of taking her with them, they left her with Jesus. This is always interesting. Why don't you say, okay, thanks, Jesus. Sorry, we'll just come back with another plan. Instead, they walked away and they left her with him. What was it about this man who refused to answer their questions that gave him some kind of authority over them? But when do, I, when do I get to the point of telling someone that they're sinning? When do I show somebody that they're wrong? You know, I find that often people who want to hear more about sin want to hear more about other people's sins. Sometimes I hear that even in churches. When are you going to talk more about sin? What they're saying is, uh, talk more about my second word, but really don't talk a lot about my first word. And there's a weird obsession with c condemnation, and it masquerades as preaching against sin. Some, I think it goes back to the Garden of Eden. We wanted the knowledge of good and evil. We wanted the measurement. We wanted to compare ourselves. So no matter what I am, at least I'm not some half-dressed harlot in the middle of the temple. Stone catching is hard to do. It means people get away with stuff. It means the guilty aren't always punished. And it means we let Jesus judge. Now, if Jesus is busy judging, what does that free you and me up to do? I think this is said so well in 1 Peter 3. What if this was the opportunity we had in every conversation? 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Sanctify the Messiah as Lord in your hearts. Hate your own sin. Focus on how you are following him. Always be ready to make a reply to anyone who asks you to explain the hope that is in you. Do it, though, with gentleness and respect. Something tends to happen when you stop making someone's sins the main topic of conversation and instead start talking about Jesus. The Jesus that you honor in your hearts. The Jesus that you say you follow as Lord. The Jesus that gives you a hope. I find that when I sit down with people, they, they aren't really super interested in me saying, hey, can we talk about your sin for a minute? But I find that most people aren't really that turned off when you say, hey, let's talk about faith or let's talk about Jesus. There's interesting there. And I think one of the things that's hanging us up is this. Maybe where we get stuck is we're not sure if the goal of spiritual conversations is to get people to sin less or to get them to Jesus. Those are two different goals. 
The Pharisees thought the goal was to get this woman to stop sinning, and they had a plan for a permanent solution to that. And what's funny, without even knowing it, they did get her to Jesus. Remember, in every conversation, it's his kingdom, not ours. It's the spirit who's the one who convicts of sin. And often, if I'm honest, uh, and, and I deal with this as a parent, I deal with this as a pastor, often who I'm really mad at is the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, why don't you condemn what I want you to condemn? Why don't you change people like I want you to change them? Why don't you convict that person of what is so clear to me? Holy Spirit, if you're not going to do your job, I'll do it for you. Hear this, though. In this story, Jesus' forgiveness overrode the laws of God. Did you hear that? It's like Jesus is saying, guys, I know that there's a verse, but just because you have a verse doesn't mean you pick up a rock. I'm showing you a better way. I am the better way. At the end of our days, I believe we're going to meet Jesus the judge. And when we do, I know that I want personally to have erred on the side of grace. And I want to have caught more stones than I threw. If you want to jump into that, I want to warn you with one last thing and I'm going to pray. I just want to remind you, it hurts your hands to catch stones. John chapter 8 began with a group of men who wanted to stone a woman to death. It ends with this verse, John 8, 59. So they picked up stones to throw at Jesus. If you take the side of Jesus, people will throw stones at you. Now, one thing that's very important to me about Pulpit Rock is that we are always asking the question, what did the Bible actually say? What did Jesus actually say? And sometimes that conflicts with what people grew up hearing their church say or what they thought Jesus said or what they wish Jesus would have said. And I know of many of you as, you, as you step in and you stand next to what Jesus did say, stones will get picked up and it will hurt. But let me help you with something. This helps me, might help you. Those stone throwers, they're the woman too. Their second word was clearly adulterer, but their first word was hypocrite. They're on the same card I'm on, and so Jesus says they are my neighbors, and maybe they just need someone to love them the way Jesus loved that woman. Maybe one day they might need someone to catch a stone for them. So great men and women of God, we want to alert everyone everywhere to the reign of God in Christ. We want everyone to have the hope within and as a man who believes that the Bible is true in everything that it affirms, there are a lot of verses I struggle to reconcile with. I, I do. I know that in, there are many times that we're called to sound judgment about truths and decisions, and I don't have all those answers. But for today, in our conversations with people who believe differently than us, how can we catch stones and point people to Jesus? And so I want to pray for us, but I want to give you a question to consider as we move into prayer. As you think about a recent conversation you've had, or you think about a conversation maybe that's coming up this week, what would it look like to let Jesus be the judge in that conversation? What would that free you up to do? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are worthy enough that the Father said, I will put all judgment into his hands. You are a good judge.
this week in our conversations, I pray that you would help us to see what it looks like to let you be that good judge. Give us the power to catch stones. Let's stand together and sing of his love for us. Yeah. 